Good evening again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis. We're continuing our Father Abraham series in Genesis. We'll be in chapter 14 today, and that can be found in the Black Bibles that are kind of spread around on page 10, so you don't have too far to go. Just flip open the Black Bible there to page 10, or if you have your own Bible, it's Genesis chapter 14. In this Father Abraham series, we've been looking back at the stories in Genesis of Abraham and looking at Abraham's faith. So what we find as we look at these stories is that Abraham is a normal person, just like you and me, uh, who falters, who struggles, who um, sometimes makes good decisions, sometimes makes bad decisions, but we see him trusting God by faith. Next week, actually, we'll see this kind of crucial point that gets quoted multiple times in Romans that shows us the faith. Uh, of Abraham that's considered righteousness by God. So he's a model for us in that sense. He's not a model in the sense that we do everything he does, because he did some stupid things sometimes, but he's a model for us as someone who trusts God. Uh, So this week we're calling the story Hero, as we look in chapter 14 at Abraham functioning as a war hero. He's going in and rescuing Lot. We've seen this already in the stories, we'll see it again and again, that Lot kind of continues to get himself into trouble and needs some help as Abraham's nephew. Uh, So I'm going to read for us in chapter 14. I'm going to pick up starting in verse 11. So we've already gotten some details about this battle. And picking up at 11, it says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their uh, provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom, king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So we've got a lot of weird names today, so I'm just going to give you a little advice. I'm going to read more weird names later. If you're ever in a Bible study or a group, this is how you do it. You just read quickly and act like you know how to pronounce the names, okay? So that's the secret. Um, so I may not know how to pronounce all of them, but I'm just going to read it real fast for you. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us. We've got more text to look at, uh, more to kind of unravel, and our prayer is that God would help us to, to get the main point of what he wants us to see. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We believe uh, that you speak to us in it. Uh, We recognize that you're a God that hasn't left us in silence, and we see that in Jesus, who came after us, who died on a cross, who lived a perfect life, who rose from the dead. But God, we don't always get what you're saying on the first reading when we look at Scripture, so I just pray that you would help us to see it. You'd help us to see that you're at work now as you were back then, 
we pray that you would help us to have faith, that your spirit would meet us here, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, in, in this story, we see Abram being a hero, right? We see him rescuing people, and uh, I don't know about you, but, but I always kind of dreamed of being a hero. It's kind of ironic. I, I live and work in a military town now, and I'm a, you know, a uh, civilian. Many of you are actual real-life heroes, right? Um, so I just kind of take it wherever I can get it when I have the opportunity to rescue someone in whatever small way it might come along. And yesterday, I had just such an opportunity. I had an opportunity to get to be a hero, get to swoop in and rescue some teenagers. We had some uh, backyard Bible clubs at our church this week, so we had some nights at our house, like 12 teenagers sleeping at our house. So if I seem extra tired today, now you know why. Um, but we had three close friends that were with us all week, and they now live in Midland. They're old Grace Bible Church family. They now have settled in Midland. And so these teenagers, we were sending them out Saturday morning to drive back on their own the 370-hour trip to Midland, Texas. So I was a little worried about them, made sure they had gas and all that, and you know, made sure the car was all right and was checking the oil and stuff. Seemed like everything was okay. Um, they had to get a little more gas, so they went on to the gas station, got some gas. They called me after they left the house. The battery died when they got to the gas station. So I was like, all right, that's, I can do this. I have jumper cables. You know, I'm not the best mechanic in the world, but I can jump start a car. So I swooped in. I was a hero. I brought the jumper cables. I jump started the battery. We got it running, called dad, conferred with them. Yeah, we think it's okay. Let's let it run for a little while, turn it off, turn it back on. Seemed to be okay. And then they hit the road. It's like, wow, I've done my good deed for the day. You know, I was feeling pretty good about myself as a hero that day. Um, So I went back home and uh, was, I don't know what I was doing, goofing off the house, reading a magazine or something. Still Saturday morning. About half an hour later, I get another call from them. Our tire just blew out. Like, they've only gotten half an hour down the road. I'm thinking, okay, I'm on my way. I get to be a hero again. I'll come swoop in. I'll help you. We'll change the tire. They call me back, like, as I'm getting into the car. And they're like, no, 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 it's okay. Someone stopped. This nice man is changing it for us. Are you sure? Is he safe? Is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. I'm like, all right. Go ahead, and uh, just call me back when you're done, when you're ready to go. They called me back. They said, we got the tire changed, but now the battery's dead again. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's it. I am coming out. I'm not going to wait and let nice man help you anymore. I'm just going to come out. I'm going to call your dad. We're going to buy you a new battery. So jump in the car. Once again, getting to be a hero. I, again, I, I don't know what the opportunities for you are. That seems like maybe a small thing, but for me, it was just, man, I I just love getting to help people out when I have the opportunity. And I don't have very many skills, so when it is a simple thing that I can actually do, it's exciting for me. Uh, In the story today, we have Abram being a real hero. And I want to emphasize that again. He is acting as a military hero, and I want to honor that we have a military town here and a lot of military heroes. But the Scripture is always doing this thing to us where it doesn't just let it be a simple story on the surface of what it appears to be, right? Like, The first reading is, Abram's a hero, he rescues people. That's it. But when you look a little deeper, there's more going on. There's more that God is up to here. And I think kind of the big idea is that Abram may be a hero, but God is the real hero. He's the hidden hero, the unseen hero. And as the story unfolds, we kind of see how the author is trying to lead us there. Um, It's not just something I'm making up because I'm a preacher, but we'll see. It's, It's actually in the story. It's actually in the text, the way that unfolds. So the first thing I want us to look at is to look at the actual work of Abram himself. That is where it starts. It starts with Abram as an impressive hero. Um, He is a military man. He fights and wins battles. Uh, He gets it done, right? He rescues Lot. Says he had 318 trained men uh, in his community. 
I grabbed a picture here of a, of a soldier in the army, again, just wanting to honor that, that many of you and many in our community are real heroes, make real sacrifices to help real people. We see Abraham making these kinds of sacrifices, taking these kinds of risks. So I'm going to back up now and read more of the hard-to-read names, starting back in verse 1. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterlamar, king of Elam and Tidal king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Pause here for a minute and just say, a lot of weird names, and people that really know ancient history have read a lot of commentaries on this, that people that study linguistics have said, these are the kinds of names that people had in these ancient tribes in these ancient places. It's very clear, um, the tribal names line up with the different people groups, you also see here the author saying, King of Bela, that is Zoar. You see him doing the work of translation, right? Present day audience, when this was written during the time of Moses, that would have been then Zoar. And so you see real historical artifacts, right? He's giving real historic details. And so for those of us that don't know the details and we're distant from the culture, it can seem kind of overwhelming, you know, like too many details. I'm not really sure why you're telling me all this. I don't know all this. I'm not that interested in all this. What I want you to take from this is that the Bible is a historical book. Now, what we forget uh, or what we get confused about is in our culture, we're kind of told that school deals with history and science. And that goes in this box over here. And then religious people, that's kind of like the ushy-gushy box of feelings and values and faith. And that's over here. And it can't really be defined. And nobody's really wrong or right. And it's over in this separate category, right? Does that make sense? It's kind of generally how we're taught. Religion stays over here. Science and history stays over here. You don't mix those things. Problem with that is Christianity is one unique religion that says our faith is historic. Our faith is that this man lived in the real world, was God in the flesh, he died, and then he rose from the dead. And that's a scientific claim. We're making a claim that this man did what no other man ever does. We're saying something absolutely crazy and insane happened, but it happened in the real world. And so the the Bible doesn't really allow us to separate out, well, that's real history and facts, and then these are values and faith issues. The Bible doesn't allow us to separate those things. It says the God of the universe broke into our real world. He interrupted our world of history and science. Now, however you want to reconcile that, different Christians reconcile the details in different ways. But don't miss the big idea. The big idea is that God invaded this world. God has invaded this world that is not hermetically sealed and he can't talk to us and he can't come in here. No, but the Bible says he did talk to us. He gave us a book. He gave us himself. He's communicated with us. And so the Bible is always dropping these historic details, these little scientific asides, these names, these peoples, these places. And the more people study archaeology, the more people study history, the more people find these details and say, yeah, that, that matches up with what it says. So we'll keep going. I'm sorry, that was a long rabbit trail, but an important one, right? Uh, verse 3 says, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So again, another place that's changed over time. Verse 4, 12 years they had served Keter Lamar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Keter Lamar and the kings who were with them came and defeated the Rephaim and the Ashtoreth Karnium, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shavak Kiriathaim, and the Horites and their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Gadesh. Again, he's, he keeps translating here every time we see this 
parenthetical phrase, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Keterlamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Okay, so I just said like a hundred names. That's the summary was that last little phrase. We got a battle. We've got four kings against five kings. That's the summary. If you can't, if your brain can't track all the different weird names, four kings against five. Big battle, big fight, big war is taking place. So four kings against five. And then, now I've lost my place. Four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. Do I have any science teachers here today? Or geologists? Or petroleum engineers? Okay, none. Wow. All right, bitumen means tar. And I have another little rabbit trail here. Uh, this is the ESV translation, which is a fine translation. I'm using it. I think it's a good one. Um, it is a very literal, word-for-word, technical sort of translation. We live in a day and age where we have lots of great English translations. And so I would tell you that if you want to seriously understand the Bible, probably you need two kinds of Bibles. Um, What I would call a Bible for close reading and a Bible for fast reading. This is a Bible for close reading. That means kind of like digging into the text, getting into the technical details, kind of hand-to-hand combat Bible study. You want an ESV or a New American Standard or a New King James, they're very literal. They get really into the details. They give you exact words. But sometimes they're a little harder to understand because they sometimes use ancient words, right? Like bitumen. Who uses bitumen? Have you ever used that word in a phrase on a, in your daily? But probably some of you have said tar before. This is talking about tar, tar pits. So there's other kinds of Bibles like the NIV or the New Living Translation that are also fine translations, but they give you more of a thought-for-thought translation instead of getting, you know, nitty-gritty detail about it. So I'm just saying it's good to have both kinds of Bibles, one that you can just sit down and read for two hours and it flows, and one that you can do really detailed nitty-gritty study with. So again, sorry for, sorry for the aside, but I just think it's an important thing to point out that sometimes we, we have these words that are kind of hard to track with. Um, so he's talking about tar pits. These guys keep falling into tar pits, bitumen pits. Verse 11 says, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So this is where Abram gets brought into the story. We have a big fight. We have all these people we don't necessarily know about. Now Lot is captured. His tribe is captured. His people are captured. And now Abram is coming to the picture. Look at verse 13. One who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshel and of Aner, these were allies of Abraham, so they're giving you all these details again. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, went in pursuit as far as Dan. That means all the way at the north end of Israel. So this is a big battle. He's going a long distance. He has 318 men. Another detail for those of you that have, that have read the Genesis stories, is sometimes you just think, it's Abram. Sarai, Lot, maybe a couple other people. Here we realize, no, he's got a whole entourage, right? He's, he's got a small little city with him. It's probably a couple thousand people because he's got 300 trained fighters. So he's got a whole community. He's, he's a tribal chief that's moving around here. So 
He takes his fighting men. They go all the way north to Dan. It says in verse 15, He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he is an impressive hero. So we don't want to miss this, right? We don't want to miss the fact that Abram is a real hero. He has done impressive stuff. He has won the battle. He's fought this impressive fight. He's a hero. And the text is highlighting that. So we don't want to miss that before we go on to the, the more that the text is going to show us, right? We want to say, man, that's, that's impressive. The father of our faith did impressive stuff. He fought this big fight. And, and one of the takeaways, I think, is that we recognize that there are things worth fighting for. Uh, and what I would like to use this as kind of a springboard for is just to recognize that Christians sometimes disagree over the use of force and when to fight and when not. Um, I think we all have a general sense that there are things worth fighting for um, and more common in our area because we are a military town. Have y'all, have y'all ever heard of Fort Hood? It's a big base that's nearby. Post, excuse me, installation. Um, there's a lot of military folk here. So most Christians in this area skew towards this one side of the Christian debate on the use of force, which is called just war theory. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Just war theory says that there is a right time to fight and that in order to suppress wickedness and evil in the world, that fighting and force and violence has to take place sometimes. Now, the Bible is clear that, that God doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked and that God isn't uh, war hungry, but that sometimes war is necessary. So we see that clearly in the Old Testament. We see that then picked up in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13. We're going to study Romans in the fall and the new school year, so we'll get into more detail. So I'm not going to kind of cover all of it, but I just want to set up for you. There's that general just war framework that it's not ideal. It's not what we want, but sometimes it has to happen. And a lot of Christians support that. And then there is a tradition of pacifism among Christians, among devoted Christians. And there's a, there is this idea of pacifism because there are verses in the New Testament that tell us as Christians that we shouldn't uh, take revenge, we should leave that to God. Uh, And so the confusion for Christians is kind of knowing how to balance those things out. I think every Christian would agree, theoretically, there's a time for force and there's a time for mercy. And I think where we disagree is kind of how to work that out. So there's the general just war framework, there's a general pacifism, peace framework, right? And... uh, there's a million different versions of that, right? So I'm not going to try to set up for you what to believe today. I, I tend towards the just war framework myself, uh, maybe a modified, peaceful just war version of that. But uh, I believe that there is a, a time for war and there's a time for peace. I believe Jesus calls us to follow him. And ultimately, when we deserved judgment, Jesus gave us mercy. And so I think that's a really important framework to look through If you are a just war person, you can't ignore that there is a time for peace. And so somehow, as Christians, we have to make sense of Romans 12 saying, don't take vengeance on your enemies, and then Romans 13 saying, no, God has given the power of the sword to the state to stop evil. Somehow we have to balance that out. We have to figure out how that works. What I would encourage you to do is to obey your own conscience and your own life. When I say obey your own conscience, that's a technical phrase that's used in the book of Romans. I don't mean do whatever you want to, right? What I mean is pray, read the Bible, and then obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by obey your own conscience. There are definite things that are clear, right? Don't murder is different than don't kill. Uh, Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't lie. You know, there are clear 
parameters in the Ten Commandments that we know are absolutely right. And then there are these kind of secondary things that as Christians sometimes we disagree on. And I would say study the Scriptures, ask God, come to your own conclusion. I'd be glad to talk to you more about what I believe and what I understand about it, but I think that's kind of a side issue for the text. It's not the main point, so I want to move on. Um, I think the main point when we see a hero like Abram is we recognize that whether you're a pacifist or you believe in just war, you need to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he tells you to go. You need to be willing to die. You need to be willing to carry your cross and follow Christ. So my question for you is, are you willing to go anywhere he asks you to go? Most of us say, Jesus, I'll follow you until it gets boring. I'll follow you until it's not fun anymore. I'll follow you, Jesus, until you ask me to do something hard. Then I'm not going to follow you anymore. I would say Christ asks us to follow him no matter what. And he promises us that it will be worth it. It's It's not always immediately worth it in the short term, but ultimately it's worth it. And so I would say, no matter what framework you come from when we're talking about war and battle, be prepared to follow Jesus all the way. Be prepared to follow him to the end. Now as we move from this section to the next section, there's this question that's begged in the text. When we see Abram as an impressive hero, we recognize that the text is written as a historical document. It's making all these ties with ancient history. It's, it's showing us this is real, this really happened. What we can recognizes this seems like, in some ways, a secular story, right? I mean, this is the Bible. Shouldn't it be talking more about God? And so a lot of commentators point that out, that this is a long section talking about history, talking about Abram's great fighting skills, and not talking about God. And so that should kind of push us to ask the question, where, where is God? What's up? What, where is God? What's he up to? Is he involved? Is he not involved? And that's where the next section comes in. And I want to call this section the hidden hero. We have a hidden hero in the story, and that's God himself. So in verses 17 through 20 of the text, we have this priest, this spokesman for God who comes in and he says, hey, God is real, and he's the one that really did the rescuing here. Abram, you're great. Good job. Way to go. God's blessed you. But you know what? God's really the hero. And I think if you're like me, and you you love those opportunities to swoop in and rescue people, like I was talking about earlier, Uh, charging someone's battery, rescuing someone they have a flat tire. If you want to be a hero, just recognize in in our own hearts that desire to be the hero in every situation. And what can happen is when we have that desire to be the hero in every situation, we can be reading the text looking for us, looking for me. And that can become our obsession when we read the Bible. When we read the Bible, if we really want to understand the Bible properly, we need to recognize that God is the star of the story. He's the real hero. He's the one that makes the Bible make sense. And so when we read the Bible, apart from that realization, we can miss a lot. Is the Bible about us too? Yeah, the Bible's about us too. The God of the universe actually loves us and came into our world and adopted us and takes away our sins on the cross through Jesus. And all these things are beautiful and right and good. And the Bible is about us too but we need to make sure we don't miss this unseen hero, this hidden hero, which is God himself. So here in verse 17, we have this next section unfold. If you look at verse 17, it says, After his return from the defeat of Keter Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So we've got the king of Sodom. Do you all remember anything about Sodom? Anybody heard of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? Some of you, I see some nods of, 
a recognition, right? So Sodom's a bad place. A few more chapters, God's going to wipe it out because it's so horribly evil. Just last week, if you were with us last week, we were told again and again, the men of Sodom are really terrible and Sodom's really evil and we need to be careful about Sodom. So we have this theme throughout the Genesis stories that Sodom is really evil. So here, the evil king comes out to meet Abram. So this is like a setup, right? Something's going to happen. And then let's see what happens next. It's interesting. It's like he comes out, and then there's a pause. The bad guy is standing there, and then we look to another character. Look at this. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this is the blessing that Melchizedek speaks over them. He's saying, God's the real hero. God's the one that delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we have this setup. We have the king of evil march out, and he doesn't say anything. And then we have Melchizedek come out, and he blesses him. And he says true things about God. He says God is the ultimate source of blessing. God is the God most high. He's the God above all other gods. He's the one that possesses everything. It says he's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one that's the owner. He's the one that's sovereign, we sometimes like to say. That means God's in charge of all things. He's king of the universe. And so Melchizedek and his name, this is picked up in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The word Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. If you learn Hebrew, uh, those are those Hebrew words stuck together, king and righteousness. And he's technically, his office is he's the leader of Salem. And you know what Salem means? Salem means peace, right? The Hebrew greeting, shalom, Salem, same word. So he is in his office, the king of this place called peace. And in his name, he's the king of righteousness. So he's the good guy. He's the one that speaks for God. He's the one that proclaims who God really is. Have y'all ever been blessed by someone? Or do you bless people? Like, what does that word mean? Sometimes we say it when people sneeze, God bless you. You ever say that sometimes? Uh, sometimes I say it, I've kind of picked it up because people say it to me. It's like, I didn't really grow up with a lot of Christianese. I grew up in a Christian family, but we didn't go to church most of my life. Uh, so I didn't really know a lot of the proper Christian lingo uh, until I became a pastor, I guess. And uh, so a lot of times people say, God bless you. So now I, I say that sometimes. I'll say, God bless you to people, but it's not necessarily an, an everyday, ordinary word, right? Like, we don't always say it. I, I think what the word means is it means, I am wishing and hoping and praying for good things in your life. I'm saying, may good things happen to you, and I'm saying that when I bless God, I'm saying God is great and God is awesome, and I'm wanting good and awesome and great things for your life as well. Um, if you've grown up in the South, you've heard this phrase that people say a lot. Uh, have you ever heard it? Like, if, if you fall and skin your knee, the little old lady will say, oh, bless your heart. There you go. See, y'all know the phrase. Sometimes that means you're an idiot. Sometimes it just means I feel sorry for you. You're not sure all the time what it means, right? Um, so the, the, the word gets thrown around a lot of different ways, right? Here, I just want to help you to kind of narrow down what, what does it actually mean? I grabbed a picture here of a Hindu priest blessing someone. Um, now, I use this on purpose for contrast, I'm not trying to pick on Hindus. Love to talk to you more about your faith after the service. But we have a distinct faith that would be different than what Hindus believe. And so the question that this picture begs, as you see a Hindu priest uh, 
shaking, uh, dripping oil over someone's head to bless them. The question is, is the blessing in the oil? Is the blessing in me lifting my hands, right? Like sometimes I lift my hands when I bless people at the end of the service. Is the blessing in the motions that we make? Like where's the blessing? Where's the blessing come from? What makes a blessing a blessing? Have you ever thought about that before? I would say that in our texts, in our faith, we believe that the blessing comes from God, God himself. That there's always a distinction being made, that there is a real God and there are other gods that are false gods. And let's get away from Hindus for a minute because I want to pick on Hindus because it's culturally uh, unacceptable to pick on other religions. So let's, I'm just going to pick on you. I'm going to pick on all of us. I'll pick on me too. Like what are the false gods that I want to receive blessing from? Well, for me, a lot of times it's success in my job, right? And so that's, that's not an organized religion, but it sure is a God that I worship sometimes. I think, man, if I just have more success in my job, more people think I'm doing a good job, then everything will be good and everything will be happy in my life, right? Maybe Is that one for you that you seek blessing in? Maybe it's seeking blessing in relationships. Maybe you think, if I just, if I just get that guy that really treats me right or that girl that really has it all together, then I'm really going to be stepping into blessing. Then everything's going to be okay, right? It's a pretty common human place that we seek out blessing. might be money. You might be thinking, man, if I can just just get a little more locked away in my retirement account or whatever it may be, or if I have more to spend on myself for fun, if I could just enjoy myself more, whatever it may be, we seek blessing in a lot of different places. The Scripture here is saying, God most high, the God that made all things, that's where the blessing comes from. So Abram, Abram's a stud, right? Abram's this war hero. He rescues his stupid nephew that keeps getting himself into trouble, keeps going back and helping him again. And he gets blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out and basically says, yeah, Abram, you're a stud. But he says, but don't forget, God is where the blessing really comes from. Blessed be God most high. He's the one that possesses all things. He's the real hero in this story. Abram's response is to give him a tenth of everything. Abram gives him money. Abram gives him some of his stuff. There's a tradition throughout really all faiths, but particularly in the Jewish and Hebrew faiths and in Christianity, of giving a tenth of what you have to support the work of publicly broadcasting who God is. Right. So Melchizedek is filling that role of being someone who proclaims who God is to the world to Abram here specifically, to his region we would assume also. And Abram supports that work by giving him a tenth. We believe that the church is the center of that proclamation work today in the world. That the church, not just our church, but other churches that uh, hold to what the Bible teaches and proclaim the name of Jesus, that we are all together uh, doing this work of blessing, of saying God is the hidden hero. He's the unseen hero. He's the real, true hero in this world. We want to proclaim him and we want to encourage people in love and in grace to turn from money and relationships and job success and respect and pleasure and all these other things and turn to the true God who's really the only place that can give us satisfaction and give us hope and give us real blessing. And so that's what we're trying to do. We encourage you to give financially to support the work. Um, This text can often be used in a really heavy-handed way and this is where it sometimes goes. It's like, well, Abram gave a tenth, so therefore you need to give a tenth, and if you don't give a tenth, then automatic curses are going to rain down on you, um, and things are going to go really bad. If 
you do give a tenth, then God is bound to bless you, give you a new car, give you a new house, and just awesome things are going to start happening. And I want to be very careful to not teach that kind of mechanical view of how tithing and giving a tenth works. I think it's a good general principle. We see here before the Old Covenant's even instituted with Moses, we see it later in the Old Covenant, and then we see giving in general without the tenth percent thing talked about in the New Testament, just the general idea of giving. Giving is a good idea. I think tenth is a good kind of thing to set on your dashboard. Am I giving a tenth? If I'm not, why not? Why don't I? How can I get there? I think it's a good question to ask, but I think we want to back off from kind of a mechanical vending machine view of giving where we think, if I just give in exactly the right amount, then I'll just, you know, rain blessings out. We need to be really careful of that. The scripture does teach general principles of when you're generous, people are generous to you, God's generous to you, but but don't forget the model of Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate giver, and will Jesus inherit all kinds of glory in heaven? And is he sitting at the Father's right hand? Yes, but what did he experience on earth? He experienced death. And so we may not always get the blessing here and now. And so I can't promise you that if you give 10% to the church, that you're going to give a new car. That's just simply not how it works often. You will, if you trust in Jesus, inherit more than you can ask or imagine. And Because of that, I would hope that you would want to give to this work, to other gospel works. It doesn't even have to be here, right? I would say, where are you now with your giving? Think about how you can give more. And it doesn't even have to be here, right? It can be to someone else. It can be to some place that lifts up the name of Jesus and proclaims who he is. So this is a model for us, but we want to be careful to not make it into a a mechanical, automatic sort of model of giving. I think more importantly, we need to think about where we give our time as well, where we give our talent, right? You have time to spend. Are you volunteering here? Are you volunteering other places? Are you spending the, the unique gifts that you have to bless other people and lift up the name of God Most High. There's a great text in Colossians that talks about what this looks like and it connects the dots between the kind of official spokesman work of church leaders and then the work of every believer in a congregation because I I have a microphone on, right? So I get to talk louder and talk more than a lot of you do when it comes to proclaiming who Jesus is. But every single one of you get to proclaim Jesus in every place that you go. And so there's a balance of a both and that takes place there. And Paul talks about it in Colossians 4. So if you write Colossians 4 down, it might be something that would be helpful to look at later. I'm just going to read these few sentences to you from Colossians 4. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So we want to pray that we would be a hidden, uh, that we would be a blessing and lift up the hidden hero of who God is through prayer. He says, being watchful with thanksgiving. He says, at the same time, pray for us. Paul is saying, pray for me as missionary apostle, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he's saying, pray that the leaders of the church, I'm translating now, will have an open door to proclaim the word so that others will hear it, right? Like you you gather here, you support the work of leaders like me and the other pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers of the church, and you come alongside and you support us and you help us to proclaim, you help us in the work of blessing and saying that God is the real hero, he's the hidden hero that people miss, but then also you proclaim as well. So you support the official proclaimers and you're also a proclaimer yourself. He says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he's saying, you're proclaiming every day. Everything you do is proclaiming, right? The question is, what are you proclaiming? In some ways, I have it easier than you do because when I proclaim, it's kind of official and uh, I'm thinking about it and I put all this time into it, right? Like Every moment, though, we're proclaiming. Everything I do, every conversation I have with my kids, every conversation you have with your kids, every conversation you have with your coworkers, every conversation you have with your neighbors, you're proclaiming truth about the world. You're saying, hey, true blessing is found here, or you're saying true blessing is found here. And there's ways uh, to be gracious about it, right? He says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. You don't have to be annoying. You don't have to, like, jam it into people. You can let it be natural. But just recognizing, recognize that there's always a value that we're proclaiming. There's always something we're putting our hope in. There's always some hidden hero that we're pointing to. So the, the last section, then, is the negative example. We've got a false hero in the king of Sodom. So I, I kind of demonstrated for you tried to kind of set up for you how the story is unfolding it just the way the text is written it has the king of Sodom walk out to meet Abram and then he's silent and then the king Melchizedek the king of righteousness comes out the king of peace comes out and he declares who God is and now the king of Sodom the king of evil is going to speak right so we've it's been made very clear throughout this text that the king of Sodom it's an evil place he's a bad guy and there's this kind of clear Good versus bad setup here of, of make a choice, right? Like, which way are you going to go? So we're going to pick this up in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. We translate this. King of evil said, Give me the souls, you take the money. How about that for translation? The king of evil said, I just want the people, I just want their souls, and you can have all the goods, you can have all the money. I can make you rich, Abram. You could be rich beyond your wildest dreams. Do you think that was a temptation for Abram? What do you think? As I've thought about this, I think it was. Abram was a very rich man. God had blessed him already, but we've also seen him make bad decisions. The end of chapter 12, he went down to Egypt, he sold out his wife to get rich, and he got really rich, and it worked. So do you think that might be a temptation that he's being tested by again here? I grabbed a picture of someone passing out a suitcase full of money. Um, now, I can honestly say no one's ever put a suitcase of money before me. <laughs> that particular temptation has never happened. Uh, but we're all tempted, right? As I said before, there's always some level at which we think, ah, maybe I could be bought, right? Again, maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe you're like, I just I don't want to be lonely anymore. Or I just don't want to not matter anymore. I just want respect. Or I just want security. I don't, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what that temptation is for you. But here the king of evil is saying, I want the souls. I'll give you money. I'll give you money. I'll make you rich. I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams. You too has a song, old song called Vertigo. It was on one of their mediocre albums, but I always loved the song. And, and in this song, they, they quote, or I guess they're not really quoting, but they're kind of like translating Satan tempting Jesus. You know, there are these stories in the Gospels where Satan is tempting Jesus to worship him. Do y'all remember those stories in the Gospels? And this is how they say it in the Vertigo song. They say, all of this, all of this can be yours. 
all of this, all of this can be yours. All of this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. And that's the voice of the serpent. That's the voice of the king of evil speaking into your life saying, just give me what I want and everything's going to be okay. You'll be blessed. Everything will go well for you. And what are we supposed to do when this happens? Well, Abram's a great, he's a great model for us. I'm going to read Abram's response. It's a good response, I think. Um, might sound kind of harsh, but, you know, when the king of evil is making an offer to you, you might want to be ready to have a strong response. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. So this is vow language in their culture. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, was he offering him sandal straps? Well, maybe. He was offering him a lot of stuff, right? So Abram's point is, I'm not even going to take the tiniest little strip of leather. I don't want to take anything from you. So Abram's being purposefully extreme to say, I'm going to trust the God that possesses everything. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to make this choice to be enriched by you and make an alliance with you and get in bed with evil just so I can get rich, just so I can get some short-term happiness or blessings with it. And so he says, I'm not going to take anything lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. He wants it to be clear that God is the one who's blessed Abram. And so then in verse 24, he says, I'll take nothing but what the young men have already eaten, the share of the men who went with me, let Anar, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So he's saying, you know, these other kings, they've got their people. You can give them whatever you want to. I'm not taking anything from you. I'm not taking anything. Because I want it to be clear that God has blessed me and you didn't bless me. And I'm not going to align with you because you're evil. And again, in context, we've seen these people were exceedingly wicked. These people were in rebellion against God. This is a hard text for us because... As a church, just kind of our vibe is trying to be uh, as relationally uh, peaceful and getting along as possible, right? Like we're a church that really values being faithful to what the Scripture says, but also being as relatable as possible, you know? Like the, the way I say it oftentimes is people want to be holy, right? People that are lovers of God want to be holy, but sometimes we confuse being holy with being weird, and so sometimes we create our own little weird Christian culture where we talk in a different language and we dress in a certain way, and it's like we're trying to be weird and thinking somehow weirdness impresses God. And I don't think weirdness for the sake of weirdness impresses God. So sometimes we need to do more work to get along with our culture. Sometimes that work needs to be done, and I, I tend to talk about that a lot, right? It's a pet peeve of mine. Like I said, I think I said this already. I kind of grew up not fully integrated into Christian culture, so then when I became a believer and got really involved in the church, I was kind of surprised at how weird Christians were sometimes. You know, like, man, why do they talk that way? Why, why do they have to do everything in the weird way? So, so that's kind of been a soapbox for me, right? That's something I'm always trying to encourage you and encourage our congregation to be as real and be as normal as we possibly can. But sometimes God lays out these options for us, and your choice is to either obey God or to obey evil. And so we, not, we need to not miss that too, right? That there are crossroad decisions that God brings us to. So there are oftentimes little decisions. You're going to wear green socks or brown socks. It doesn't matter, right? Just get along with your neighbor. It's no big deal. But sometimes there are big decisions where God says, choose what's right. Follow me. And it's going to cost you, right? I mean, look back at the, the contrast here. 
He decides to support the work of the king of righteousness, and it costs him something. He gives him money. And he decides to reject the king of evil, and he loses out on money. That cost him something. That was a hard decision that he had to make. I said earlier, no matter what your view on the use of force and warfare, you have to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he asks you to go. And this is another one of those places where Abram is beginning to learn his lesson, right? A couple of, couple of weeks ago, he was not being so smart, right? But he's, it's like he's starting to get it. He's starting to see that he can really trust God. And I want you to see that too. That's what I'm learning. I'm learning that along with you. There are days when I'm frustrated. And there are days when I'm like, no, this is good. I can trust him. He knows what he's doing. It might be hard now, but it's going to be good later. As I said before, the example we have of Jesus is in this life, he lost everything, but he inherited everything. And the New Testament is absolutely clear that through Christ paying for our sins and giving us his righteousness, that through him we inherit all things. We inherit all things with him. That God, through Jesus, looks at you and he loves you and he's delighted in you and you're a part of his family and any suffering and any difficulty you're enduring now is just for a season. It's just temporary and that better things are coming. So because we believe he loves us, we can say no to these kind of temptations. Whatever, again, whatever that temptation is, most of us, it's not a suitcase of money, right? Most of you are not, you know, offered like, here's a suitcase of money. Go do a bad thing now, right? It doesn't, it's not usually that black and white, but we're all facing these temptations where we're, we're lured away to do the wrong thing Trust that he's good. And trust that doing the right thing is not a way to earn his love, but doing the right thing is something you want to do because he's already shown you that you can trust him. He proved that to us through Jesus. He gave us Christ. He gives us his love. So we, now, we can, now we can trust him. Now we can follow him. Well, yesterday I told you I went to jump the car. Um, I went back. I was going to go back to uh, change the tire, but the other guy changed the tire before I got there. Um, then they called, and the battery died again. So I jumped in the car. I was rushing out to meet them. It was just kind of an aside. They didn't really know where they were. They were just somewhere between Copper's Cove and Lampasas. So kind of, you know, somewhere out there. I was speeding down the highway, rushing in to be a hero again. As I told you, I was pretty juiced about it, right? Like, I get to be the hero. Uncle Dave is swooping in to save the day. And guess what happened somewhere around Copper's Cove when I was driving in? to go rescue them. My car died. And I was like, God, come on. I want to be the hero now. I need a hero to rescue me, right? Like, has that ever happened to you? You are working so hard on being the hero, and then you recognize real clearly, oh, I'm not the hero at all, am I? I need someone else to pull me out of this mess now. So then I'm calling my friends, like, hey, can you come rescue me? I was trying to rescue someone else, and, you know, car blew up, and now I got a problem. Uh, it reminded me, and again, in the moment, I was like, oh, that's interesting, God. I'm, I'm kind of studying this. I'm about to talk about all this tomorrow. It reminded me that sometimes we get to be the hero, but God's the real hero. And to the degree that we trust him and see him as the real hero, that's, that's when we can really exercise our role as, as junior heroes in this world, right? Bringing blessing into our neighbors and our family and our friends' lives, recognizing I'm not really the hero, but I'll do what I can, right? I'll do whatever little bit I can. But God is a real hero. He's the possessor of all things. He's God most high. He's the one that I trust in. The author to Hebrews really brings this to light with Jesus. The author to Hebrews says that Jesus is the fulfillment of this weird character, Melchizedek, right? He's this weird character that shows up out of nowhere. We're like, who is this guy? This 
random priest that lives in Salem. The author of Hebrews says he's the, the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And it says he wasn't a priest based on his bodily descent, meaning where he comes from, like you and me. We're not in the new covenant based on being in the right families. Matter of fact, a lot of us come from the wrong families. It's not because of the tribe we belong to. It's because of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace. He is a priest and king forever in the same pattern as Melchizedek because of the power of his indestructible life, because of his resurrection, because Jesus conquered sin and death once and for all. So, so I hope you see that hope, that you and I, we're not a part of this thing because of bodily descent, because of tribe, because of DNA, because of neighborhood, because of education. We're a part of what Jesus is doing because of Jesus, because he's the real hero. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you for taking our sin. Thank you for giving us resurrection life in Christ. We thank you for adopting us into your family and we pray that we would uh, be heroes in some small way because you are the real hero, the one who is at work delivering us from our ultimate enemy of sin and death. We thank you. We praise you. Pray that you'd be with us this week and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.